Heartland Woman, Conversations on Changing the World, the podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host. You're already familiar with today's guest, her beautiful voice combined with the searing lyrics of Into the Wild serve as the musical backdrop for this podcast. Gretchen Plus is one of my favorite singer-songwriters. I'm going to ask Gretchen to discuss how love, religion, sex, and self permeate her music in some edgy and unexpected ways. We'll talk about how she was able to tap into her haunting lyrical powers at such an early age. And I'm eager to find out what she thinks about gender and the creative process. We're very excited to have Gretchen with us today. Gretchen, thank you for agreeing to have a conversation with us today. Absolutely. Thanks, Marty. Could you tell us about the first time you ever picked up a guitar and said, ah, I like it. This is mine. (laughs) I, I guess I was probably around 11 and I was staying with my Aunt Patty down in Virginia. I found this baby tailor in the in the basement. They'd have finished. And what's a baby tailor? Let's okay, yeah, I guess I should slow down. <laughs> a baby tailor is um, a small-sized uh, tailor guitar. So tailor is the brand. And it's, it's essentially a beginner's guitar, or it could be a travel guitar, depending, um, just based on its size. But they, you know, they keep in mind small hands. Okay. So the neck is, is good for beginners. So I found this in the basement, and uh, I realized after asking my Aunt Patty about it that it was my cousin Jenny's, and she was around the same age, but she hadn't really taken to it, and my Aunt Patty just kind of noticed how much I was staring at it and playing with it. So when it came time for me to go back home to Ohio, she said, why don't you take that with you and tell your mom to get you lessons and see if you pick up on it, uh, since... Jenny really hasn't taken to it. I actually got to bring it home with me when I left about a week later. How'd your mom feel when you showed up with a brand new, for you, a brand new baby tailor and Mm -hmm. said, Aunt Jenny says I'm supposed to get lessons. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, my mom was, she was, she was really excited because, um, you know, it was one of those things where at the time we, we had just sort of moved and, and were in a new house and I wasn't really getting a lot of new things or new hobbies and trying to fit into uh, a new school district, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to find something that was my own as the new kid. I think she actually realized that it was sort of important. So she, you know, we, because we had just moved and we were situating ourselves, we didn't have a lot of money. So she didn't really have the money to buy me guitar lessons because they're expensive. So what she did is she just started looking around. Uh, she worked at the University of Akron, Wayne College, and she just started looking around to see if, if any of the other professors or or staff knew how to play guitar and might be willing to give lessons at a docked rate. So she ended up finding me uh, a professor there, a friend of hers, Gary Bays, and he agreed to give me lessons. And I'm not sure what sort of bargain they came up with, but it ended up being actually much better for me because it was really personal. He didn't have any other students, so, you know, I really got the ample 
an ample part of his time. I like hearing the discussion up to this point and the idea that your mom was so supportive and she mm-hmm. kind of created, it sounds like, a community of people that she knew to be supportive of you. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering about you in this mm-hmm. process. I mean, when you when you picked up your baby Taylor, did you think, yeah, mm-hmm. I know this, I want to do this? It's It's strange because when I'm thinking back on that time, I think it was just sort of an experiment to me. You know, I was I was always very, uh, I was a music lover. And, you know, I had two older sisters and my mom, they were very much into Lilith Fair. Do you remember Lilith oh, Fair? Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. So we listened to nothing but, you know, the Indigo Girls and Jewel and Cheryl Crow. And yeah, you Lannis had a mom Morissette. taking you to Lilith Fair? That's I never cool. got to go. Oh, It okay. ended <laughs> when I was... Um, relatively young she took my older sisters and but in that process I got really familiar with the music because my sisters were always playing it in the car and uh, my sister Emily tried to pick up guitar for a while and she was terrible (laughs) so I just I was surrounded by music my dad when we were when I was little uh, he was a musician as well and played guitar and sang I just had this love for music and I thought well maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll actually be good at this. You know, I'm good at other things. I'm good at soccer. I'm good at, so I just kind of, as a kid, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I, maybe I can do this. But it really wasn't until I was a couple of lessons in that I fell in love with it. I'm very struck that you said you were 11. Because the research on 11-year-old girls Mm -hmm. shows that it's, an absolute magical age. Mm-hmm. That the age of eleven is where girls are the most self-confident mm-hmm. in terms of knowing what they want, in terms of just not letting things stand in the way. Mm-hmm. It's before all of the puberty, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, bullshit from the culture sure, that starts trying to dictate to girls a correct way that they're supposed to behave absolutely. and think and respond to themselves and others. But there's something about 11. It's yeah. that it, it truly is growing into a young woman in mm-hmm. ways that are unique for that age. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I think your brain is just like a sponge at that point, too. You yeah. just pick up on things quickly. But it's also, like I said, you know, I I was just confident. I went into it confidently and said, I think I can do this. I think I'll be good at it. I had no, I have no recollection of even being concerned with what other people thought or, you know, if they judged me for being terrible. Wow. Um, So, I mean, even six months into playing, I was ready to perform out. I had, you know, I didn't care. And it's funny because if I would have started at 15 or 16, it would have been way different. I probably would have been too nervous about what, you know, other girls or other boys yeah. would think. And too self-conscious about yeah. everything surrounding that, about right. a, a performance and what you and thought what your image is. should be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as an 11-year-old, I didn't care what I was wearing or, yeah. you know, makeup, nothing. So yeah. it's like I was just focused on the music, too. Did you start singing I did. As soon as you started playing? I did, actually, pretty quickly. I'd say after a couple months of a couple months of lessons, I um my guitar teacher Gary, he said, "Why don't we try singing with the guitar? This is going to be really difficult because you're using 
you know, you're using a lot of your brain to yeah. sort of balance the two. So he's, he just sent me home with Silent Night, which is a really simple song. And it was getting to be almost Christmas time. So I just went home and I, you know, I tried over and over again. It was so difficult to sing and, you know, to phrase with strumming because it's your, you know, like I said, the tempo is, is, is odd. I just started singing and, and, you know, I remember thinking like, I, I can tell that I'm on pitch. You know, I knew kind of what pitch was. Wow. And part of that was, you know, in school, in elementary school and in church when I was little, you know, I was in the choir. And so I had that sort of rudimentary, you know, pitch uh, experience. But yeah, when I started singing it, my mom actually overheard me and she thought it was great for, you know, me being 11. And when I Okay, well, wait, let's say it was great even for you not being 11. I mean, (laughs) lots of us have the experience of singing along to the radio and church Mm -hmm. choir and elementary school choir, Mm -hmm. and we sound nothing like you do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, it's hard for me to, I mean, I know where I am now, and I'm very confident with my vocal abilities, but at the time, I was still learning how to breathe correctly and and not sing out of my nose, but, you know, my tone and my pitch were very good. Yeah, so when I when I showed that to my guitar teacher, he he was actually the one that was, you know, sort of, for lack of a better term, term floored, just because he didn't expect yeah. me to come back with it, you know, that well, performing that well either. He didn't so, expect to really discover a talent. Yeah, exactly. giving an 11-year-old girl mm-hmm. with her baby guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cheap lessons. <laughs> right. So that was when the lessons started to get harder. Yeah, I bet. Because <laughs> then he was like, well, now I have to, she could actually be really good someday. Um, and now I'm going to really focus on providing her as much knowledge as I can from the get-go. Who were your early musical heroes? I would definitely say um, growing up, Alanis Morissette. Uh, I was, like I said, really into the Indigo Girls. And then, honestly, around that age, some of the artists that really got me interested in pursuing music were Tori Amos and Fiona Apple. And some of the stranger, kind of, they had really strange melodies. Um, And I was really taken with that because it was like, it was creative. And I I was starting to get into like, kind of sci-fi things and, okay. and you know books they were young adult books but they were dystopian or sci-fi and and it that sort of fit the mood you know Tori Amos's music and Fiona Apple and those those sort of songwriters they have this way of kind of incorporating dark melodies with um sometimes lighter lyrical content too and it's really interesting I, and that definitely comes out in your music in fact, one of the things I'd wanted to ask you today mm-hmm. about that was what do you read? Because um, I I think it's very evident in your music that you were synthesizing a lot of influences mm-hmm. that are artistic, but not necessarily confined to uh, uh, the way that we tend to think of traditionally musical influences. So right. I was wondering how much of what you read yeah. shapes your music. 
quite a, I mean, uh, yeah, that's a, a big influence is what I'm into uh, in terms of literature. And, you know, like I said, from an early age, just getting into, uh, I was into a lot of fiction, fantasy, sci-fi, dystopian sort of genres. And, and a lot of times I'd gravitated towards female heroines because, okay. yeah. you know, I identified with them. But then, you know, in recent years, I'll read really anything. Lately, I've been primarily, I've been more into nonfiction and in particular, you know, portions of history where horrible things happened because I think, you know, to read on, read up on these events, for instance, like the Trail of Tears and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature, it, it gives a lot of insight into where we need to be heading. And it does inspire me as a writer to also sort of embrace where we've been in order to get where we're going. You were an anthropology major mm-hmm. in college. So was, so was Tracy Chapman. Did you know that? Yes, I did know that. <laughs> I saw, we had a picture of her actually outside of our department because um, she's originally from... She's from Cleveland. From Cleveland, yeah. 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 Uh, so you have a lot in common with Tracy Chapman. Not, yeah, I love Not her. bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How do you think that training as an anthropologist has influenced you musically? Oh, I think it's been a great predecessor to what I'm doing because, I mean, musically, I'm dealing with people every day. I mean, performing, even writing, you know, I'm observing people and observing myself and how I act in social situations. And so it's really just given me a new perspective on how to think and how to this is going to sound strange, but how to sometimes emotionally disassociate myself. Like I need to be empathetic and emotional to write, Mm -hmm. but I also need to be able to separate myself in order to perform and deal with people. And I think having that academic background in anthropology helped me learn how to balance the two. I don't think it sounds strange at all because after all, isn't that what art does? Mm -hmm. You have to stand back a bit from the the personal to be able to express it in a way that reaches other people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Otherwise, you take Prozac. Right. <laughs> I mean, no, honestly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's the ability to have a kind of critical view of your own emotional response mm-hmm. and not fully succumb to it, but to do something with that emotional response. Yes. That's I think that's yeah, and it's important because you have to be able to deliver the message, or else, like you said, you just end up sitting with it, you know, and and weighing in on it on yourself, and you're never fully able to help others sort of heal from their experiences or or embrace theirs. And do you see that that's what you're doing? Is that the vision you have of what you're doing with your music? I would say definitely, yeah. I think. Where I'm at now is I, my main purpose with music is to reach others. There's that grandiose vision that you have when you're growing up of like, you know, obviously there was that moment in my early teens where I was like, you know, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I could be famous someday. And I think you watch the Grammys and you exactly. think someday that'll be me. Yeah. And at that point, you know, the world revolves around you. Yeah. And then you get older and you realize the world doesn't revolve around you and that we're all connected in some form or another. And especially now on a global scale, you know, with technology, it's actually, 
you know, there's a lot of talk about the industry has changed tremendously, but I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. I think we just need to learn how to embrace it and use it for our advantage. Um, and the advantage is that we can reach more people as artists. And that, I mean, it's this is the part that's still grandiose, and I still have this grandiose vision of I really think that art and music have the ability to change the world and to change the way people think and act toward each other. And so I hope that even just, even in just emotional responses that are, that seem trivial, like I had my heart broken by a a boy, you know, that seems like a trivial notion, but for someone else that's experiencing that and having a really hard time with their mental health because of it or, or what else, what have you to identify with the song and hear that and be able to process those emotions and heal, they're able to get up the next day and maybe maybe move forward in a different or know, to way. not heal i mean a lot yeah. of your work is about not healing and i think the message of yeah if that's you're, a good if notion you don't like that. heal you're okay too that's, that's also part i of really the like that yeah because people think of you know grief and this could be grief with loss or death it doesn't matter People think that grief just eventually goes away and eventually you're just, you're fine again. Embracing the fact, like you said, that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to carry that grief with you through life and work through it as, you know, more as a long-term process rather than just the short-term, I'm better now, you know. I had not thought about this before, but one of the the aspects of your songwriting, and it's you mentioned a few minutes ago you, that you define yourself as a writer. Mm-hmm. You didn't say songwriter, which of right. course you are, but it seemed that your emphasis is on the writing. Yes. And is that is that the case or am I misinterpreting that? No, I think that is actually, that's definitely the case. And I've had this conversation with other, with other musicians and songwriters and writers because you know, before I was really invested in music, I was writing short stories and poems, and that's always been my strong suit in academia okay. as well. So I always identified as a writer first. I have other friends that are songwriters, but they more so identify as musicians. They're yes. more, and I think it's honestly where your heart is. I think, like you were saying, like you're you're very fond of words. You're a word person. Yes. I'm a word person. I feel like language is just one of the most fascinating parts of human of humanity and so I you know when I'm not writing songs I'm writing poems and I'm I'm writing letters I'm writing other things and I think that's what when when people do listen to my music most people pick up on the lyrical content first yes it I I find uh it it just leaps out of the speakers or yeah. the headphones. Thank uh, you very much. It, it's very, very powerful. The other thing that just occurred to me as you were talking about seeing, about really seeing this as a kind of canvas for your own emotional processes, mm-hmm. that I think so many songs, I think kind of what we look to in songwriting is a kind of 
finite experience in terms of of its book ended there's mm-hmm. a there's a beginning and a middle and an end sure and usually the the end is some kind of resolution and you don't find that mm-hmm. typically in your work yeah i think that's an interesting point actually i've never really thought of it that way i think over the past couple of years i've you know, as humans, we're naturally sequential, and we like to see things in a format that's, like, tangible and, un, you know, we can understand. And we I've, like resolution. Yes, we do. I've, I've learned from my own, you know, uh, quirks and anxieties that sometimes embracing the fact that nothing is concrete and everything, you know, plans change, and, and really time isn't so linear as mm-hmm. we think it is. We're, we think that we're getting to a destination, but really we... We operate more in, in cyclical fashions, and that's, to me, what's helped me actually process my emotions better instead of always looking for an answer. I'm I'm looking more to the process. I'm looking more at, you know, how do I embrace these unknowns and how, how do I work through them, even though there's not really a, a finish line. Which... Is poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so, too. I think, I mean, life is kind of poetry. Life is, yes. you know, yeah. life is art. It's taken me a long time. I mean, it's taken me years to even get to this point of being able to embrace that chaos in a way. Uh, it's not so much chaos, but people see it as chaos of the idea of not knowing and not having um, stability. But my entire career is unstable. I mean, I... I exist on instability like that is that is the music industry and so I have to be more fluid and part of that process versus you know opposing it and I'm just thinking that's mostly how we could describe life yeah um and that the notion of stability isn't in fact an illusion it's a social construct really yeah, okay yeah yeah <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> i like that <laughs> and there's something about but but it's also terrifying to look your own stability in the face mm-hmm. to to listen to your own voice and to really have to deal with I mean, because those are the fundamental existential questions right of, right of life and death and randomness and uncertainty and love mm-hmm. that we thought we could count on right and god who at times doesn't feel there right just how much is up for grabs including including our own sense of self absolutely yeah let's take a short break now yeah. <laughs> and when we come back giving us a lot to think about i know now i'm in now i'm completely in that mindset <laughs> well good because i want to talk more explicitly about some of your lyrics Mm -hmm. and some of the major themes you have going on and maybe we could hear another song or two yeah absolutely uh, in our next segment but we'll take a short break now and be back with Gretchen Plus in a minute and in the meantime you get to hear Gretchen Plus singing what they tell us how they compel us like to wonder what is true in the speeches the ignorant preachers 
have feedback, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com. And we're back talking with Gretchen Plus. Gretchen, your, your songs present the adult complexities of love and sex and relationships that are really very far beyond the age you were when you wrote them. They're beyond the youthful angst that many young songwriters tend to indulge in. And here I'm thinking, in fact, of some of your heroes, like the Indigo Girls, whom I should say I love. Mm-hmm. But if you go back and look at their early stuff, there yeah. was a lot of there was a lot of I, I used to call it undergraduate angst yes. going on. <laughs> you avoided that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how it was that you were able to display a kind of an experience and a wisdom that was about love and sex and relationships that mm-hmm. seem far beyond where your years developmentally. Sure. I think to answer that, it, it sort of comes down to growing up. We we were very transitory uh, in my household because when my parents split, I went with my mom and she had to find a new job and we didn't have a house. So we lived with my grandparents for a while and then we lived in, you know, a different home every six months, you know, oh, lease to yeah. lease. I sort of had to grow up quickly mm-hmm. because I was the other uh, head of the household. I mean, my mom was working so much and I sort of had to, uh, in a way, just fend for myself. And a lot of that wasn't necessarily survival. It was just also emotionally. I had to be emotionally resilient during that time. And that, that time period also gave way to learning to play guitar and sing you know, through that, I actually met uh, my first long-term boyfriend, and uh, he was a little bit older, and we were together for seven years, and that was my first real relationship was that long, and so I just, we had a a sort of a a sense of depth there that um, I didn't really have to go through so much of the in and outs of teenage angst. Okay, yeah. I had, sti- I had yeah. stability, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On your album, Out of Dreams, it, it I think it really shows there. It's very striking there. You have lyrics. Uh, one of them I wrote, wrote down because the first time I heard it, it, it just kind of blew me away, and it's stayed with me since then, mm-hmm. that it's so easy to make love to an obvious foe when you're down. Uh it's so true, and it's also so adult <laughs> to know that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm assuming with that goes when you've had one too many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yep. Between that and, you know, and I'll also, you know, down as in emotionally just depressed. Mm-hmm. And so then you're searching for someone else to fill that void. And usually they're the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> and usually you choose them because they're exactly. the wrong person. <laughs> yeah. Even on, even the, how the CT looks 
for that album. You have a heart, but it is not what we think of as a heart mm-hmm. uh, for an album of love and lust and relationships. Mm-hmm. Can yes. you tell us about that? <laughs> it's a very anatomical heart. It's it's a medical heart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's it's in a sense. The heart taken out of the body, mm-hmm. separated. It's very clinical. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, analytical. Mm-hmm. It's a pump. Yeah, and that that was uh, at the time. You know, I was I was in college when I released that, and I was very. Uh, I was I was just sort of starting to realize that emotions are are perceptions. That's why sometimes they're not always necessarily what you would consider real. People have that idea of the heart being, I don't know, this is, this is, this is a, this is a tough question actually, because I th- I think of, you know, I do think, you know, for me, existentially, I believe in sort of um, energy and like in the form of like a, maybe a spirit or something of the sort. So I've, I've dealt with going back and forth religiously with that, but I do think, emotions are products of our perceptions and our our brain and our, and how we function and being able again that was my process of being able to disassociate with my emotions and be able to to control them a little bit better so i think the anatomical heart was a good representation of control <laughs> you're just mentioning talking about trying to wrestle with issues of the spirit um, mm-hmm. takes me to your album from birth to breath to bone mm-hmm. your lyrics are so distinct and complex but in and in that in that album there's an abundance of religious imagery mm-hmm. in those songs did you intend for those to be seen as a, a christian message or do they become metaphors that you happen to be comfortable with? I mean, there's a lot yeah. of lost, not found. I mean, you, sure. you get into some very detailed biblical mm-hmm. metaphor. And I, and in fact, my co-host, Doug Jones, who could not be here today uh, for this interview, but as he and I were doing pre-production meetings a while ago to talk about your music, he had only heard... Mm-hmm from birth to breath to bone and he said well is does she see herself as a christian singer mm-hmm. and i said uh, i don't think so i think that's fair <laughs> and he said but it's all just so right. religious right we had such different mm-hmm. kind of impressions and interpretations sure. of you based on that and i'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit yeah i think actually um a really good point to bring up because a lot of people think I might be a Christian artist based on the metaphors that I use and that was done intentionally because I think people have religion is very polarizing and I am not particularly a fan of organized religion just because I think a lot of times it's just a you know especially in the Christian realm there have been a lot of instances of uh, just exhibiting control and and it's a power play. But at the same time, religion is so human. It's so, I mean, that's something that we don't, we don't really know if, we don't think, I mean, we, we, we can't really process the fact that animals might have religion and they don't have organized religion. 
humans do and that that's such as an anthropological you know from an anthropological standpoint it's so fascinating to me and I grew up going to church not we weren't very strict by any means we went to a Presbyterian church in Cincinnati and it was a um, you know what people would call probably a liberal church it was very very accepting anyway so I I've always had these you know I remember as a child in one particular instance being taken out of Sunday school because I was asking too many questions <laughs> so then the 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 um, minister started meeting with me uh, to answer those questions, which actually was really, I thought that was really interesting as a child to have this, you know, this man was, you know, entertaining all of my questions and not berating me for asking them. But in Sunday school, I was too distracting um, to the other children. So I've always just had this like fascination with existential, you know, questions of birth and death and life and that's where that title came from and so being able to interject uh, metaphors centered around religion I want people to question I want people to wonder is she religious or is she not because that's not necessarily um, it doesn't say uh, it doesn't give way to who I am necessarily it's just a matter of being able to see uh, religion in a new light and, and being able to see spirituality in a new light where you can, how do I say this? I'm trying to formulate my thoughts around it. Where you can not be a part of a religion, but still be able to talk about it openly and be able to question it and even even be a part of it in a weird way. So for me, spiritually i you know i have i have sort of my own beliefs about what happens after we die and 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 a lot of that has come from you know the the uh theory that energy you know cannot cease to exist it's it's just forever uh, a part of the universe and that's something that is not necessarily embraced by christianity it is in a way of like we go to heaven what does it really mean when the body dies where do we go where where does that energy go so I'm constantly thinking about these things and I was trying to again show people that you can talk about things of that nature without necessarily being a part of it let's uh, take a closer listen to one of the songs off of that album. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to, for us to play a little bit of a song called The Unknown and then have you talk about it on the other side. Excellent.
saying in the unknown so this one goes back to what we already talked about with instability and embracing it i was thinking of this in terms of the evolution of self but it also could be the evolution of humanity in the sense that the sooner we as individuals and we collectively embrace that we don't know anything (laughs) you know we we Mm -hmm. know we can know niche uh niche processes and you know and academically we can be very uh, well educated in certain arenas but we don't really know where we're going and what the world's going to hold for us all in the end and so individually we all go through different chapters and phases and this in particular captures the the phase in which I started to relent control over my own life I just started allowing things to happen and then manipulating them. But instead of, you know, I need to get my PhD and I need to make this much money by the time I'm, you know, 28 and those sorts of constructs that were sort of taught at a young age, I, this was the song of me embracing that I no longer needed to abide by those rules. Where you felt those expectations, it sounds like in a sense, um, handcuffed you or constrained you from being able to have the full experience of being Gretchen Mm -hmm. that you were looking for in your life. Absolutely. And it also was affecting how I was uh, engaging in my relationships, whether romantically or with friends. And part of that was, you know, I was sort of masking my own mental discrepancies. So I was experiencing depression and and other things of that nature and I think you know early 20s are it is kind of that it's a time of where the hell am I going like what am I going to do with the rest of my life it's really overwhelming I needed to kind of break free of those chains in order to just be myself again and I think the in the early 20s you are obsessed with the what am I going to be when I grow Mm -hmm. up question and I think that you actually expect an answer and there's something about with aging that you realize no matter how old you are you don't know what you're going to be when Mm -hmm. you grow up and you realize that's part of the mystery of the doing of life yes but in your early 20s you and the whole social construct around you says you're supposed to know right and it's fundamentally based upon what occupation, how are you going to make a living, right? Um, marriage and babies and, mm-hmm. and all of all of the social constructs that says this is what it is to be an adult. Yes. I, I think uh, I've, I mean, I see it even with friends of mine now that are a little bit younger than me. And I, I just, I see it in the same way that I did back then of like this 
there if you just start step away from yourself for a minute you realize that you're the only one putting these timelines on you that I know that there are pressures if you just look everybody in the face and say well, I'm not going to do that they'll eventually just leave you alone I mean eventually <laughs> it took me you know I'd say I'd say the first couple <laughs> years out of college people were like what what are you doing you know and part of that was because I was really I was good at academia and I, and so I had all of these uh, opportunities to go further and you know be in a more stable position and yet I chose to be where I am now uh, which is where I'm supposed to be and I know that uh, where I need to be personally but it took a long time to sort of garner that respect and let and people eventually just sort of letting me be sure <laughs> yeah it requires I think a lot of strength to be able to let go of the people who can't accept yes letting you be that's another thing that's a hard hard thing to do it is you had talked a few minutes ago about the influence of science fiction and reading a lot of science fiction on your uh, melodies in particular mm-hmm. and you talked about having and I wrote down you talked about strange melodies one of the first words that come to my mind when I listen to your work is the word edge mm-hmm. there is an edginess to your melodies and edginess to your lyrics Often they don't match. Often, you you know, you will have a lovely little melody, mm-hmm. and the words are could just emotionally cut you to the bone. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there's all there's always an edge to it. Uh, Doug laughed when we were again when we were doing a pre-production meeting, and he said, "She's got an." attitude <laughs> and, and he said and I like it <laughs> there is something like about it's a singer songwriter with an attitude mm-hmm. I mean your voice is so beautiful that it would be very easy for you to make a career mm-hmm. on simpler yes concepts yeah uh, on tidier endings a little bit more delicate yeah yeah but you you don't stay on that shore. You dive in, or you mm-hmm. jump off the cliff is probably the better metaphor. Yeah, into the things, and you have a lot of water imagery. That's why it, yes. it comes to mind. You water is my favorite element. <laughs> you and you have yeah. You there's yeah. so much water imagery going all the way through. I wanted to mention for a moment, talk just a little bit about your song "Bottom Feeder," mm-hmm. because it is so distinctly a song that jumps out as as being everything that it can be in a studio concept sure because or studio con context I should say so much comes out that feels disjointed and again incredibly edgy both yes. musically and lyrically in that can we play a little bit of um bottom feeder and then we'll talk about the edginess there.
feeder. Can you talk some about that song? Sure. This one is definitely, this one was a little bit angrier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can feel that. (laughs) Uh, Uh, And it's, and it's angry in, in ways that are very disjointed. mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, the the melody is it, it, it from the very beginning is kind of disturbing, mm-hmm. and the lyrics seem to you know the first time I heard it I thought well okay she's talking about another woman mm-hmm. as a bottom feeder yeah, and then it quickly changes to you're saying because I'm a bottom feeder right that was yeah I think what it was so this one kind of. Um... I was at an age where I was in love with a boy. He, you know, there was another woman that he had feelings for. Okay. Could, could, could I stop you right here yes. just to interject something? Yep. And I don't know how you're going to react to this. Yeah. When I heard this song, the first number of times I've heard this song, other people have said the same thing to me, that mm-hmm. it sounds like it's three women. Yes. Yeah, it does kind of. Yeah. You're not surprised to hear that. No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I don't hear that as much in your other work, but mm-hmm. this to me sounds like you're talking about, and and the complexities mm-hmm. of three women involved in a love triangle. Sure. I like that, actually. I love that people are perceiving it that way. Okay. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, in this, in this particular scenario, when I wrote it, it was around, centered around a man and another woman. I completely... You know, and part of that might also be because by society standards, this man was sensitive and, you know, feminine. Um, And so I I kind of actually, that that makes sense to me. That really does. There is an emotional depth to it. And and I I use the word already, complexity of of the entanglement Mm -hmm. of all of those emotions yes, and expectations about relationships and mm-hmm. betrayals and understandings all lumped together. That is, that is very female. Sure. And that's what, when it goes, you know, when you were saying, um, when I, in one of the lyrics, cause I'm a bottom feeder. Yeah. Uh, the current can't make me go with the flow. Like that whole, that verse in particular. Uh, but you left out the line. Because I'm a bottom feeder, lowest of low. Yes, lowest of low. And that, you know, it sounds like a slight on myself, and I guess it kind of was, but I was embracing the fact that I am not a good partner, probably. I'm not the best choice, because I don't, I can't just sit still. And I will feed, you know, at the time I would feed off of, uh, my emotions and I'd feed off of, oh. you know, so that was kind of what I was saying is I'm, I'm, I'm feeding off of, I guess, not necessarily the drama, but the, the, um, I'm a little too emotional and I'm a little too uncontrollable. And so I was kind of actually in some ways giving permission to not choose me simply yeah. because I was unpredictable I, who knows where I would be in a year, you know, or that kind of thing. But it's very intensely sexual, too. Yes, it is. Yeah. And that, that, 
this that water image, mm-hmm. and again that notion of a bottom feeder, mm-hmm. which is sort of feeding off of kind of the sexual energy mm-hmm. and dynamics of other people it's dirty. as well. <laughs> yeah, there. No, yeah, really though. Yeah. yeah, and that's almost you know, I'm a woman who knows what she wants sexually. Right. right. Yeah, it was very. This. I mean, that is part of it. I was really embracing my sexuality in that and I mean I, I don't remember what I was probably 19 when I wrote that 19 or 20 okay then that's that's some of what blows me away is that that's not a 19 year old song <laughs> <laughs> I understand that <laughs> thank that's you a, that's a 40 year old yeah. woman's song right right because <laughs> most 19 year old women are not Mm-mm. as in touch with the the darker and embracing the sort of darker side mm-hmm. of 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 truly exploring your sexuality mm-hmm. and and being sexual fully yep. and what that means and again that's like you know like i said one of my big inspirations as a kid it's going to sound odd as a kid was alanis morissette but you know revisiting later in my teenage years she had that one line in her song that was like would she go down on you in a theater yeah you know and yeah. i'm like God, that's so badass. Like, you know, she's <laughs> yeah. just letting me know. Yeah. And I and I remember thinking about that, um, not necessarily when I was writing the song, but around that age of like, yeah, you know what? It's okay if I, you know, embrace that I'm sometimes, you know, I don't even know how to describe Sometimes I'm a bad bitch. Like, you know, that was what I was well, thinking when I was writing it. I'm like, I have to embrace that persona in my in, in myself because that is part of me, you know. And your your version of "Will she go down on you in a theater?" is, mm-hmm. and I hope you look at her some nights, and you wish it were me mm-hmm. by your side. Mm-hmm. And you're not saying, "Oh, because you could tell all your troubles to me." Right. I'm saying because I'm such I'm, a good listener. Yeah. It's because I'm good in bed. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm a better fuck than she will be, right? Exactly. I'm so glad you picked up on it. I, I, I don't see how you couldn't. It just, it just screams. Yeah. I mean, for me, I have to be careful how much I listen to that song because it transforms me. Sure. In ways, you know, you go right. to that... I want to use words like sultry. I and want to, primal. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That both lyrically and musically, mm-hmm. you you really take us there. And I love that, that like you said, that you perceived it as three women because, I mean, you know, women are like just powerful sexual beings when they embrace their sexuality. It's really powerful. So I, I actually really love that that's seen more in a feminine light. You know, I, and I guess that that takes us in a direction I also want to ask you about, which is how is your creative process mm-hmm. shaped by your being a woman? And do you yeah. think that makes your self-reflections on relationships and love and emotion and sexuality more acute in a way? What What is, I mean, that's like mm-hmm. asking a fish what it is to be wet, Sure, right? Yeah, because I don't have that pun intended here, but um, (laughs) (laughs) how for you has your struggles with becoming, you started at age 11, Mm -hmm. so becoming a woman and 
and fully embracing being a woman. Yeah. How has that affected you creatively? Tremendously. I mean, because there's so many different chapters of womanhood. You go, I mean, I went through a phase of thinking that to be a woman, I needed to be feminine. And then I, you know. And what does that mean? To me, that meant, you know, I need to present myself in a delicate manner or I need to be soft-spoken or I need to be, you know, I need to be skinny and curvy at the same time. All of these sort of <laughs> ideas that you have yeah. of what it is to be feminine. So realize that. So yeah, with like, with my perception of what femininity was, I thought, you know, at that time, you know, I needed to be like I said, sort of a delicate flower. And then I, you know, I went back to another chapter of of embracing womanhood, which was, well, women don't have to be. Women are just human beings. As a child, I was actually extremely, it's hard to say masculine because children aren't necessarily one or the other, but I was very adverse to <laughs> showering. I liked being outside. I dressed like a boy as my family would have said I was you sort were just of being I was just being and so then I was trying to get back to that is what you know I went through that phase in in high school probably of being trying to be a woman which in my head what a woman was was you know this sort of soft-spoken feminine flower and then I went back to no I'm I'm actually complex and I'm an individual and I'm Sometimes I'm androgynous and sometimes I'm feminine and sometimes I'm masculine and, you know, there's no right or wrong. And so how that reflects musically is, you know, you probably can see some of those chapters in my music of what I'm experiencing on an individual level, you know, as a woman and the emotions that come with that and society's pressures. And Do you think that the creative process itself is different for women than it is for men? That's a good question. I guess I've never really thought of it that way. But I, I would have to imagine so. Because our our life experiences are so mm -hmm. different. And our, like I keep using the word perceptions, but it's true. Our perceptions mm -hmm. are so different. So we could be in the same situation and see it completely differently. And I have you know, male friends who we talk about a situation and I, I saw it completely differently or I'm able to be, uh, depending on, depending on what the situation is more subjective or more objective and vice versa. It's, it's, so I would imagine the creative process is different. Yeah. But at the same time, our emotions are similar. It's just that how we see things is sort of a product of our upbringing and our experiences, you know. And to a great extent, uh, when we talk about our emotions are similar, how can we ever know that? That's true. Given that emotions aren't solid, static things. No, they're not real either. necessarily. Yeah. yeah, right. And what, I mean, if even if we talk about love, what, what love meant, what how we interpreted it 10 years ago for any of us is very different than how it feels, how we experience it mm -hmm. today. Yes. Um, and thank goodness, right? What 
what a what a boring journey life would be yeah. if all those things were static. Absolutely. Sexuality and or, and joy and grief and all those things if they just if they just existed independently of us in that kind of solidified way. Mhm. Where would we grow? Yeah. Do you feel like you've used your music to explore being a woman, to really explore yourself as a gendered being? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think my there's a focal point to a lot of my material that is centered around being a woman in the world. So not just on a personal level of how it feels to be a woman, but how do I operate within the world as a woman and how am I perceived by men mm-hmm. and other women? Yeah, I mean, really, that's that's a thought process I have, even not artistically. I just, you know, within relationships. Sometimes after the fact, I usually, I'm usually i usually on good terms with my exes and we're able to talk about, well, what did you expect me to be? Or what was I to you? What what did you see me as? And I think that's a something I'm constantly putting into my material as well. Do you see your music as political? Elements of it, yes. Can you explain yeah. that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have not all of my material is political, but my I have quite a few songs that delve into politics and not necessarily just in the sense of, you know, left versus right, but leadership and, and, uh, uh, empathy and humanity and how those interplay with politics. I'd like to, uh, play, uh, part of one of those now. And the song is simply, but profoundly called human. Let's hear a little bit of human and um, we'll talk about it on the other side. Factory black sun, hungry and barefoot. These are the monsters that society sponsors. Children in turmoil, wars over crude oil. This world is a As a sociologist, I have to, obviously, I 
listen, I hear things through that lens first. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I have to say, this was uh, <laughs> one of the most sociological as well as political songs. Uh, tell me about the writing of this song, Human. Yes. Um, I wrote that one when I was sort of disillusioned with... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is a, actually, that's just a constant now. <laughs> I was dis disillusioned with where we were heading politically and, and with our leaders, our interactions with the world. And I just... That song in particular was written when I... The, the most concise way that I could sum it up would be that we weren't embracing our humanity. We were actually pushing empathy away. And through that, we were positioning people to be the other. And we were being, we were able to manipulate, you know, things such as the earth. And, you know, the earth is the other. So we're able to basically rape it of its resources uh, and in the same way you know people in the Middle East are the others so we're able to go over there and and uh, take cities and and fight I mean that's kind of just the idea of war and just this constant constant uh, label of the other but then there's even within our own country the label of the other and whether that is you know demographics uh, it could be gender it could be women are the other or uh, it could be minorities are the other and so that was I mean I wrote that song geez I guess it would have been probably close to nine or ten years ago and just within that time I was I was thinking it would get better and it's just gotten worse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know <laughs> babies and caskets yeah empty bread baskets yeah yeah that's that's a really um harsh aesthetic but it's yes true. yes it's it, reality it, it just punches you in the face and there's no way you can um there's nothing subtle about it mm -hmm. and to to not be punched in the face you have to turn it off there's no there's no other you don't allow for any other interpretation mm -hmm. but that really powerful message that you're trying to send and that is the irony of the title human is it's actually about the process of dehumanization so it's ah. that's what you know babies and caskets that they're babies you know they also might be syrian refugees and we didn't you know embrace them because they were Syrian or you know there's all of these dehumanization factors that are part of that song or they could be infants in this country dying mm -hmm. at birth given absolutely there's still infant mortality rates in this country we have a high infant mortality rate really mm -hmm. for a for a first world country yeah what what role does place have in your music you're very much a heartland woman. You're very mm -hmm. much a, a girl and a guitar from the Midwest. Mm -hmm. How has that shaped your music? I guess being from the Midwest, um, anybody from the Midwest kind of understands that you feel like you're sort of in the center. You're sort of on this line uh, in between 
and not in necessarily in between worlds, but in a way, I mean, because we aren't the South and we aren't, you know, North or the Northeast. There's just a different culture in the Midwest. It's sort of like no man's land in a way where, every, you know, there's, you meet people from other places. I think, you know, for me, it's it's growing up in a, med, a Midwestern home, you know, sort of lower middle class family has shaped how I'm able to interact with people from all walks of life, sort of just exist without, I don't want to say without asserting myself, because I am asserting myself, but, but do you, I, I think you, do you I, catch what I'm saying? Well, I, the word that came to mind as you were saying that, I wanted to say that you, you can live as a watcher. Yes. Sort of as a fly on the wall. Yeah. yeah. And that, at the very beginning of this conversation, you talked about that really being what you, your music is about, is is being able to step out of the fray mm-hmm. long enough to look at it and describe it. Yes. And evaluate it. And evaluate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is the, sort of the beauty of the Midwest. The other thing is I, you know, I mean, even logistically, as a Midwestern artist, it's the cost of living here is cheap. There is this sort of accessibility where I'm in the, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of all of these. I'm central uh, to all of these cities, all of these bigger cities and all of these places. You know, I'm six hours, you know, from the south. I'm six hours from uh, northeast. There's just all of these just logistical factors that also have a play in being more accessible but just being able to be a part of different cultures in this country in and of itself because there's so many cultures within our one country so in a sense it's easier to overlap yes exactly and relate to more than one group of people there have been those writers who talk about uh, political writers who talk about that in the Midwest, the politics aren't politics so much as they are life. Mm. That when you talk about things uh, like, well, like lead in the water, for example, right. that that these are not issues to be discussed in a removed way, that these are about how children grow up in your neighborhood and mm-hmm. if they grow up in your neighborhood. Yes. That that there's a reality to housing and hunger and the land and pipelines and energy and mm-hmm. all of those things that is, in a sense, real and, and earthier. Yeah. <laughs> and inescapable. You and know. inescapable. Yeah. Well, you have... Uh, some pretty exciting news for a big change that's about to come up in your life. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I um, I can't disclose too much info on details, but I am uh, I am uh, moving forward with a new project, a, a new recording. I'm going to be touring extensively off of that and working with uh, new groups of people and hopefully distributing it 
a little farther. So you've signed with a new label. Can I you have. tell us I what have. that is yet, or is yes. that part of the secret? Oh, no, I, I can definitely tell you. It's, uh, it's, it's Sun Petal Recordings, and we have signed uh, with this new album that's going to be coming out. Um, and I don't want to release too many details about the album because that's going to be 2019. Okay. But it is, um, it's a big, it's a big project. We're already uh, done with it and just prepping for release right now. So I'm really proud of it. I'm, I'm really excited to show artistically where I'm heading, but also just um, as, you know, we've been talking about it again, you know, even just as from a Midwestern perspective, being able to reach more people, I'm hoping that this new album will be able to reach more people and and I hope people will be able to relate to it really well will you come back and talk to us when you can say more absolutely and when we can sample and talk about your new album more yes of course great Gretchen thank you so much this has been a really fun conversation to have thank you and we look forward to working with you much more yeah we've had a great time today thank you thank you very much Marty. to hear more from gretchen well you know you can tune in to our podcast and every time you will hear gretchen singing our theme song into the wild you can also find links to gretchen on our website www.heartlandwoman.com We'll leave you today with this thought from another singer-songwriter, Dolly Parton. The way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.